Hey folks, really interesting podcast on here with Christopher Shom. Um, uses his academic background and his professional background to give really insightful um, information on psychology and how the brain works and how we work as humans. Some really good points from Christy. Christy uh, studied a undergraduate in psychology in UL and he went on to do a master's in neuropsychology in the University of Edinburgh, so there's no shortage of knowledge there. Christy has worked in the NHS in the UK and now is currently working with Motus Learning. Motus Learning has a free uh, newsletter as well from a reputable source, which is a great asset to have. So if anyone's interested in that, please subscribe. Um, really, really good information thrown out by Christy throughout this podcast and from sciences and studies and reputable sources so you can be assured that that the knowledge is absolute and um, i really enjoyed this podcast i've got some really really insightful information from christy throughout so i know you will too so yeah i've no more to say enjoy the podcast On today's podcast for Difficult Conversations Made Simple, we have Christopher Shum. Uh, Christopher and I are good friends from De La Salle. Uh, Christopher has an extensive background from, from UL and the University of Edinburgh in psychology, neuropsychology, and human cognitive behavior. Christopher, for those who don't know you as well, can you tell us a little about yourself and why you agreed to come on this podcast? Um, so yeah, my name's Christy and um, so my education, as you mentioned, I have two psychology degrees, one uh, undergraduate in Limerick and then my master's was in neuropsychology. I also then worked in the NHS for a year. I've worked in, volunteered in Sri Lanka and the National Institute of Mental Health and about two years ago now I've set up a company that carries out mental health programs in primary schools. Uh, so teaching children about cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, neuroscience, and in September, I will be starting a PhD, looking at the long-term effects of that. Um, and I suppose the reason why I came on just because I was interested in it, I think it's an important topic and it's something that can never be discussed enough. So I felt, why, why not? No, no, and I'm, I'm delighted when I saw your background, I just thought you were the perfect candidate to come on and, and give us a more scientific background. And I'm just going to get straight into it here, which I saw, Christopher, um, obviously this podcast is is for males such as ourselves and just general everyday males. Uh, what is your opinion on stigmas among men such as real men don't cry or a man's man? Yeah, well, 100% exists anyway. Like there's definitely still a script that men are expected to follow um, in order to be included. Um, and the statistics show it as well. Like I think it's the biggest, uh, suicide's the biggest killer for men under 50. Uh, men are far more likely than females, for example, to actually commit suicide as opposed to attempt it, but actually go through with it. Um, and on top of that as well, I will make the point, though, I do think it's improving uh, very, very slowly now. But the conversations like this are fantastic, too, for us. But um, I can even give a few examples in the public media, um, like even in TV and movies, for example, like I'm sure everybody now in, on Earth is familiar with normal people, for example, yeah. like it's opening up the conversation whereby you have your male protagonist who is showing mental health issues um, 
and he's been rewarded like normal people was rewarded for going that for that approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other shows, for example, like Bojack Horseman's another strange one where you have the male protagonist again having difficult mental health issues. And I suppose tying back to the stigma thing, it's just I think it's slightly improving because it's 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 becoming accepted that the male life or the male expectation is difficult. And it's okay that it's difficult. I think that's an important point to make, that it's not something that we need to ignore. It's something that should be appreciated. It's difficult, but if you can come out the other way, then obviously it's a great, great thing. Yeah, um, just one interesting point on there, Christy, is that the numbers are going up for males seeking help. Um, do you think it's more so more people are more comfortable coming forward or there actually is an, an upward trend of, of males having mental health problems? So th- this is interesting, like I've studied and worked in the UK and over there, I think it's so much different between the UK and Ireland, whereby it's far more, it seems to be in urban places, particularly London, it's more accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think men are more able to open up that they're going to a therapist or they're seeing somebody, but Ireland is obviously parts of it are incredibly rural, so it's highly frowned upon. Um even if people don't mean to uh, to be judging it, they do unconsciously. Um, so I do, again, like I'm probably taking the positive outlook here. I do think things are improving, though, like even rural Ireland, it's slowly going that way. But of course, the other problem then as well is that in Ireland, you're more than likely going to have to go private because the waiting lists are so long. And as a result, it's um, creating a dichotomy where you need money in order to get help, which, of course, is an issue in itself. Yeah, yeah, and costs should never be something involved with mental health or or anything. Yeah. Like you see, so many other things covered on the medical card that are more mm-hmm. physical symptoms, but I just think the mental health side of things are neglected. Christopher, yeah. you have um, an extensive background in psychology and sociology from your undergraduate in UL and your masters in the University of Edinburgh. What made you decide to go this pathway, and are you glad you took this route? Yeah, so starting off with why I went into psychology, I always knew I wanted to do it. Um, The reason being is it's such a new field. Like it's only about, it goes back to maybe Freud would have been one of the first, so about 100 years. But it's also such a big problem in society at the moment. Like how I like to see it is that like physical health care is like quantity of life. So it's basically trying to make you last, uh, live longer, while psychology is more quality of life. So it's basically how well you can live. Um, that's what always interested me, the fact that it's a problem and there's space for innovation there, which probably uh, drifted me towards setting up Motus. Uh, We'll talk about that in a while. But going then into the neuropsychology aspect, um, there's lots of psychology that can often be airy-fairy. So it's kind of like um, explain how you feel and on one day uh, somebody would feel great, but on another day they might feel terrible. So it's not really accurate and scientific. Mm-hmm. But I liked the neuropsychology aspect because it's proper science. You can't argue with what's going on in the brain, for example. We can objectively see it rather than somebody trying to subjectively explain how they feel. No, uh, some really good points there, Christopher. What are some of the key things you learned from university related to men and their mental health? Um, so, yeah, I'll start with education. Um, my experience as well has taught me probably a lot more, but education-wise, um, one interesting fact that I probably will bring up is um, the difference between shame and guilt, particularly with uh, males. Um, so this is something that so many people aren't aware of. Um, unfortunately, it should be common knowledge, but it's not. So 
the difference between shame and guilt is that um, we all have an idea of what's right and wrong. But when we do something that we personally feel as wrong, so when we're judging ourselves, that's shame. So for example, I'm trying to eat really healthy and one day I break my diet. Now, if I went and told my friends and my family, they're not going to judge me for it. It's not a big deal. But I have my own moral system, so I'll still judge myself. So that's shame. While guilt, on the other hand, is when I might not see it as wrong, but everybody else does. So I feel judged by other people. For example, if I broke a rule or a law and I don't feel bad about it, I'll still feel judged by other people. Now, the reason why I think this is really important, um, and this was extremely important within my education, is shame is the foundation of mental health issues, a lot of mental health issues for uh, men, mm-hmm. whereby men feel shame when they're not living up to their masculinity. So they feel like it's not an objective thing. It's okay not to become or to be very masculine or what society expects is masculine, but you're judging yourself. And if males can't identify that it's their own moral system that they need to change, then they can't really change the problem. They think that's just the way it is. But if they were told from a young age that this is just the moral system or something you've learned unexpectedly, you would be able to change it over time. And then with the guilt aspect, I think this is important too, because I used to work in an anger management program. And as you can manage, and as you can imagine, uh, there was lots of males. uh, The majority were males with anger uh, management issues and this it, every therapy session ended up the same way it used to be um you would argue basically you shouldn't hit you shouldn't have hit that person and they're like I should have I have to do it that's the way I am but rather than trying to get in an argument of what's right and wrong what's far more effective is saying to them how did you feel and the emotion they feel when they hit somebody or when they do something that everybody else sees as wrong is guilt they're feeling judged by other people so by telling them, okay, I'm not saying you're right or wrong for doing it, but what I am saying is you don't want to feel worse afterwards, and that's why you shouldn't do it. So helping, uh, of course, I'm always biased towards teaching it to children, but adults as well, mm-hmm. particularly men, if you can teach them the difference between shame and guilt, it helps them identify the emotion better when they're feeling that. So, for example, when they're um, not being masculine, when they don't want to go out with all the lads, for example, identifying okay this is shame and sometimes your moral system can be stupid uh, what you see is right and wrong so you can correct that to make you feel better and then in relation to guilt it's correcting okay you shouldn't act impulsively which the research shows males are more likely to act impulsively because you don't want to feel guilty afterwards you don't want to feel worse not because i'm telling you what's right and wrong i'm not telling you what to do i'm just telling you you shouldn't want to feel worse which they mostly agree with Sorry, I know that was a long-winded answer. No, but I, I learned so much from you, you speaking about that and it probably uh, opened my eyes to, to a lot of instances in my, my own life. Um, one thing I, I'm just curious about, um, maybe I'm wrong, but guilt seems to be the umbrella term for for shame as well. And, and we, we probably struggle as males to like separate the two is there is there a systemic problem in ireland with guilt um from maybe the catholic church and 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 things like that that have developed a a social pressure in society it's just a a throw-off question but i'm i'm just curious about guilt because it comes up a lot yeah um so answering the first point you made about the umbrella term um the issue with the 
being a lack of differentiation between the two is because it's the English language sometimes isn't good enough to differentiate between them. Like for example, so shame is completely personal. It's about yourself. But when you, when I say, for example, I'm ashamed of you, that complicates the matter, if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, people yeah. tend to put it all under guilt. Um, so that's why there's, um, there's a lack of understanding, I think, anyway. And in answering your second question, um, great question uh, in relation to the Catholic Church. Um, I'd like to think, anyway, our generation today isn't as influenced by the Catholic Church. Um, definitely not. In fact, I actually think it often goes the opposite way, where you have a lot of these more liberal types, basically, who are more against the Catholic Church. Now, um, it's interesting because research actually shows that uh, spirituality or um, being attached to a religion is actually generally good for your mental health. I, th I think it often gets a bad rep because people are just picture, they've heard the negative stories about the Catholic Church and they just stick to that. But in reality, for example, going to mass every week creates a sense of community, which I think is good. Prayer is just another form of meditation or mindfulness, which of course is beneficial. And the stories, obviously, some people only take them at face values from the Bible. They take them basically, or they're just made up stories that didn't happen. But I think people miss the point that obviously they're metaphorical in that they have deeper meaning. Yeah. Um, sorry, I sound like a massive, <laughs> I love the Catholic Church now, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean that at all. Um, the other point I will make, though, is definitely your, your point about, I think, the guilt aspect it definitely impact our the generation before us 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly with sin or I can't talk about this or it's my own fault, that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, I've, I've also massively seen the negative sides of um, other religions. Like when I was in Sri Lanka, the attitude there of this karma is basically if somebody is mentally ill, today or if they have if they're badly disabled it's because they were bad in the life before um and that has it's almost an excuse for the government to fund it less which is terrible but based for religion they can be beneficial to mental health but there are definitely dark parts to it as well which doesn't help at all no i i agree with you there's there's some good and bad and in, in everything in life but i think in particular to religion you take what you want from it and it's a, a comfort mechanism and who are we to tell others that not mm. to leave or uh, indulge in it i just I'm, I'm really curious about the shame and guilt thing uh one thing that comes up is often if we're not if we're off the off the drink you know the, the common expression depending on your sport yeah. or background or, or what you might be trying to achieve um, you might see some friends go out and, and there's a, a sense of, of guilt that from them that you're, you're not going out. But I, I, I don't think, coming back to it, that we don't feel like if we make the conscious decision not to go out, I don't think we actually have shame. It's, it's guilt is the problem in that aspect. Is that right? So um, this, this is, that's actually a very good question. It's complicated. I would actually say, or I'd like to think, if we don't go out, so obviously there's the more common term would be FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. So it's more related to our own moral system that I think basically if you told one of the lads, I really don't want to go out, like if they're your real friend, they're going to be like, that's fine. You don't have to go out. That's not the end of the world. Um, so it's more your own moral system. You're more feeling like you're judging yourself, really, that you're not going out. So it would be more shame rather than guilt. But, and this is the complication, that it's not a known thing. So people will say, I feel guilty for not going out. But it's more they're feeling ashamed. 
that makes okay. sense. Okay, no, it's it's so interesting, and that's the one that comes up often, and, and probably will persist for many years of our lives. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There, there's a often, there's often a, a trade-off comparison between male and females' mental health that women are better at coping with emotions and feelings. Is this true, or what does the science say on this? Yeah, so research basically shows men and women completely deal or regulate emotions differently, uh, whereby women are far more likely to use emotional expression, uh, so they're more likely to talk about it, while men are more likely to repress. Or um, on top of that, males also like to problem solve, fix the problem straight away. Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't a stereotype, or this isn't um, like trying to put people into boxes. That's what the research shows. Yeah. Um, and that sounds immediately negative. It sounds like it's a lot worse for males than females, but it's not really the case um, because there's other examples where while females are more likely to express their emotions, they're also more likely to ruminate. So they're more likely to keep thinking about the same thing over and over again in an unhelpful way. Mm -hmm. While males, in some cases, it is better to problem solve. Like, uh, this is a big issue that I need to deal with. I'm going to deal with it straight away. That's, it's not bad. So... I suppose the answer, the, the best case scenario here and what's important to emphasize is this idea of cognitive flexibility. Now, that basically is just a fancy way of saying, dependent on the situation, we should be able to use different emotion regulation strategies. So, for example, if there's a debt in the family, the male approach of trying to problem solve is not helpful because that person's after dying. So you can't solve that problem. So in that case, the best thing you can do is express your emotions, is talk about it, um, which I'll talk about more um, in a few minutes. But on top of that, then in a situation where there actually is an issue that you can do something about, it is a good thing to problem solve. So it's not so much about you should just use one type of emotion regulation strategy, but it should be context dependent. Dependent on the situation you're in, you should be able to use different uh, types of emotion regulation strategies. That's really good. Um, I've, I think I fall into the uh, male category of being a fixer. I'm very pragmatic on, on what happens. Yeah. But you said, like, depending on the situation, like, say, bereavement or something like that, I, I don't think I'd have the, the skills. I don't think I'd, I'd probably have the skills to be more emotionally expressive during those different mm. moments. And, and it's interesting to find out that uh, it's more so about cognitive flexibility, whereas females are probably stronger in one aspect and males are stronger in the other. And yeah. they, they are both good, good skills to have, but depending on the situation one may be more appropriate than the other. Like um, a good example tying to that would be like, I've often been in a situation myself. I, I think this is a learned response for males to be problem solving, but you have a friend who's feeling down, um, like let's say one of the lads and your immediate, pro your immediate advice or is why don't you do this or why don't you do that? Or you should do this or you should do that. But strangely, uh, this is something known as validation in psychology. It can be far more. Um, it can be far more effective if you literally just say, "If I was in your situation, I'd feel terrible too." It's not trying to solve the problem, but just sitting with the negative emotion. That can be far more effective than why don't you do this or why don't you do that? Because that invalidates their sadness or whatever negative emotion. It's telling them it's not okay that you feel this way, and it is because, as we've spoken about, life can be difficult at times. So, yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I that has come up in, in previous podcasts that even if you don't have the answer just to to listen to someone and say yeah like mm. uh, it's, it's a bad situation and sometimes that's all someone someone really needs yeah Christopher um obviously you've done an extensive background in education but um how does the education 
compared to the professional world or the real world, does it prepare you well for the realities involved with working in this field? Oh, God, no. <laughs> so I'd say I learned more in my like few years. doing. I'd say I learned more in my first six months of experience than I did in my entire um, undergraduate four years. Yeah. Um, like the problem is particularly in clinical. So the other issue is the, the public's perception of what psychology is, is very mis is very incorrect. Like they often think like everybody pictures somebody lying down on the couch and the psychologist talking to them, mm. but that that's not really it at all. Um, that's only a specific, very specific type of psychology. Okay. Um, so you realize quickly, so you learn all the theory in, in your undergraduate about like why people act the way they do. And then when you get into the real world, you try to apply all the theories and you realize it's just not applicable mm. um, a lot of the times. Now, one thing I will say is it's still important for psychologists to try and integrate that theory in. Uh, it's just very, it's very, very difficult to do. But as you get more experienced, you get better at it. Yeah. Um, and one benefit I will say massively, like I've no regrets about my education. It was fantastic. But one really, really useful thing that psychologists learn is um, critical thinking. So the ability essentially to look at a situation and be like, and think differently, think outside the box. Um, and this, the, re the reason why this is so relevant in psychology is when you're reading research papers, to be like, okay, this research says this, but that doesn't mean it's true. So looking at the statistics and being able to tell, like if you have one study that's looked at five people and you look at one, another study that looks at 10,000, the one that looks at 10,000 is going to be far more effective and it's relevant to the real world. Even if the one in, uh, that only has five people, uh, it might be throwing out all these massive claims, but more than likely it only represents those five people, and not the general population. And this, of course, is a huge problem at the moment because obviously fake news, people just see articles, they see it was published and then they're believing it straight away. So that's so answering your question. No, not really. It hasn't been relevant, but it has still given a lot of skills that are incredibly important to be a psychologist and just to be better educated, I think. So. Yeah, life skills in general. But what, yeah. what I'll be saying with, with the critical thinking is to delve deeper. Um, is that a practice that you would use to, so if someone's saying like, I, I don't like going out on Tuesdays, you you go further than that to find out the real cause of why they don't like Tuesdays. As, as yeah, a yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think just psychology kind of, if you're interested in psychology, you're interested in, there might be more meaning behind something. So I suppose, yeah, that would be an example where you'd kind of take it a step further and find out why. Um, I think more critical thinking though, particularly uh, for people anyway, is questioning why is somebody thinking that way um so it could be basically something that it's kind of related to empathy then of course it's being being able to step in their shoes and understand why do they think something that way and not to judge as opposed to actually to understand rather than to judge immediately yeah, and definitely the, there's a subtlety between empathetic and, and sympathetic just like there is between shame and guilt yeah Christopher what what are the engagements between the brain and the mind how does our brain dictate our feelings and how does this pathway work okay I'll try not go off on a tangent here <laughs> um the, the the best way I can explain this is what we teach the children in our workshops so um the first thing that's really important to point out because when people hear the brain they automatically think it's too complicated to understand Mm -hmm. um that's the first thing if you break it down it's not that difficult 
The second thing is people see the brain as a full whole, that it's only one part, basically. Um, when it's actually made up of lots of different pieces working together. That's a better way to look at it. So there's an emotional part of the brain. So for the uh, fancy people there, it's referred to as the amygdala and the anterior cingulate cortex. Mm -hmm. um, and these are basically the emotional parts of the brain. Um, so these are the first brain areas to receive information. So uh, we take in information to our senses. So for example, when you're looking at me or when you're listening to me, we take in information to our senses and then it goes straight to the emotional brain and emotion is ex expressed like interest or boredom or excitement. Yeah. And then after that, the next part of the brain it goes to then is known as the, the thinking brain or the prefrontal cortex. And this is where we generate thoughts about it. Now, this is ingrained in our biology. It comes from our ancestors. So our ancestors' world was a lot different. They just had to survive and they faced lots more dangerous situations. So there's something in our brain known as emotional hijacking, basically. And this is essentially where if our ancestors were faced with a dangerous situation, like a lion in front of them, he or she would have two options. They could either get ready to fight or to get ready to run away. Yeah. If they were getting ready to fight, the emotional part of our brain would send us what we understand as anger and we get ready to fight straight away. If it was getting ready to run away, it would send us what is known as fear. And this is what lots of people know as the fight or flight mechanism. Then over time, we developed more and more emotions. And we still have this emotional hijacking today. And I think this is particularly relevant to, um, to male mental health because, as I mentioned, males are more prone to be impulsive. The reason why is their brain is set up to be emotionally impulsive. So their emotional hijacking feature is more likely to happen. So with children, for example, if they get bumped into in the yard, their emotional brain could take over the entire brain straight away and they'll get ready to fight. So picture like the pathway again, it's take in information to the senses, then the emotional brain, and then the thinking brain. When emotional hijacking happens, the thinking brain is told shut up and the emotional brain takes over and we act straight away. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is we want to train uh, children's brains and everybody's brains in general to not be emotionally hijacked, to basically stop before they make a decision so that they can let their thinking brain have a say and then make better decisions as a result. Um, but I will point out as well, emotional hijacking is still important. We still need it. So for example, if we were in a dangerous situation, like if a car comes past at us quickly, we do want our emotional brain to take over straight away and move. But in more day-to-day -day examples, when we're in an argument, we don't want it to happen. Um, a common example as well would be if you touch a kettle or a hot surface, your hand will automatically move straight away. That's emotional hijacking basically in place. So um, the thinking part of the brain or the prefrontal cortex, that's quite a new area of the brain. So it's not fully developed, particularly in children and adolescents. So that's why adolescents are more likely to be impulsive. So what, we, what we're trying to do at MOTUS, um, and the research is looking good on it, is we're trying to teach children to be less impulsive. If they can visualize what happens in their brain before they make a decision, then over time, their brain will learn to be less impulsive in an emotional situation and then make better decisions as a result. Some, some really good points there and you're right from, from our ancestors and that's probably what Maslow's theory would probably break down to. But the, the fight or flight from the sympathetic nervous system and as you said, like depending on the situation, sometimes you do just want your brain to take over. But how difficult is it to, to train our brains to to know situation to situation when we would like it to take over and, and when we'd actually probably prefer to process it a bit more deeply. 
so the brain is extremely complex so no matter what if the situation was really dangerous it would always emotionally hijack but it's in those situations that are kind of ambiguous that we don't need it to happen that's what we want to work on mm-hmm. um how difficult is it so you're probably familiar with this so up until the age of 25 uh the entire brain is fully developed except for that prefrontal cortex or that thinking brain. So there's something known as neuroplasticity that happens then. So what that means is our genes are less important at that stage, but our environment's really important. What children our adolescents are exposed to is what they can essentially change in their brain. So that age group is really, really important. So that's why we're targeting children as well, because if we can target it at that age, their brain is slowly being wired to be less impulsive as they get older. But that doesn't mean, so in the anger management program I worked at, this is something we did. It's very, very difficult. I won't lie. It's difficult to rewire your brain. It's like learning a new language. Um, So it's far easier for children to learn a new language than it is for adults. It's the same thing with, um, with being less impulsive. So you just have to try and rewire your brain basically to be less impulsive. And what we teach them is if you can stop, picture your emotional brain and picture your thinking brain in any situation. So you need to practice it all the time. So even if you're ordering a takeaway, for example, if you can stop, listen to your emotional brain, listen to your thinking brain, then over time, your brain starts to be rewired. And then in an emotional situation, your brain will be more ready to act less impulsively. So it's difficult, but it's possible. Is that some of the key mechanisms you would use then to challenge that then, Christopher, is it just to acknowledge certain situations and how we can actually would it be to take a deep breath and process it a bit more or recede ourselves from that situation from escalating and and giving our brains a, a bit more time to process it you see like leave again this ties in with what we were talking about earlier with the cognitive flexibility like if if you have a, if you feel you have an anger issue for example leaving the situation can be fantastic like that is a problem solving situation but there will be situations where you won't be able to leave where it just won't be possible so as a result, my immediate advice is to practice, practice, practice about improving how your brain reacts to the situation. And then when you can obviously leave. Um, another really, really important thing as well uh, that's imp- uh, to acknowledge is very, very be careful with how you word things that when you say I have an anger issue and I can't do anything about it. Um, that's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that basically if you think if like if you really believe that you can't change yourself you're never going to change so sometimes you have to rather than saying it's the way i am it's basically change that to i have an issue with this but i can't change it no i'm really glad you brought up the the, i have an anger issue and i can't change it because i heard an interesting quote the other day that the the person who says they can and the person who says they can't are both usually right so if yeah. you do just if you do just say I, I can change this, then then you have a, a far better chance than you would have previously. Uh, Christopher, there's a lot of speaking common knowledge um, around serotonin and dopamine as neurotransmitters that help our cognitive function improve and, and feel better. As a result, are there more neurotransmitters that are not as common knowledge out there? And how can we increase the release of feel good brain chemicals or neurotransmitters? Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're, they're the three big ones, definitely. Um, endorphins. So the big association with endorphins would be exercise. So uh, endorphins are kind of a pain relief, uh, a natural pain relief. So when we exercise, uh, we feel better generally. Um, dopamine then is related to rewards. So it's basically it makes us feel good. 
um, but too much of it can be dangerous. So you associate dopamine with like cocaine, for example, or even today, uh, tweets and text messages, notifications. Mm -hmm. So it's about finding that balance. And then serotonin is kind of that stabilizer. So basically it stabilizes your mood. Um, we want as much as this as possible, but we don't want too much because too much of anything can be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one really, really important neurotransmitter that's a current hot topic uh, in the psychology research world is oxytocin. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of being known as the love hormone. Um, this is the hormone that basically when you attach to a caregiver, so like a mother or father, oxytocin is basically exploding in your brain. And that's really good. Also, maybe when you're in a serious relationship, when you're in love, um, that's oxytocin being released. Now, this ties in perfectly then with what I was talking about earlier about shame, because people who are often ashamed of themselves or they have low self-esteem, what often happens is this is a learned response. And there's actually a biological explanation to this. Somebody with low self-esteem is not releasing enough oxytocin generally. So they're judging themselves for nearly everything they do. Like, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that? I should have done more. What's happening, if, if that is existing from a young age, which of course ties in with bullying big time, mm -hmm. is there's a lack of release of oxytocin. And as a result of that lack of release, then your self-esteem essentially plummets and you, um, you continue to have mental health issues as a result. And the solution to this basically, firstly, is obviously identifying the shame. But what's really, really important, and I used to hate this because I used to think it was very airy-fairy, mm -hmm. the research is showing self-compassion is incredibly important and what this is is essentially being more kind to yourself it's having that awareness basically that as human beings we are likely to make mistakes we will make mistakes no matter how much uh instagram shows that everybody's life is perfect their life is not perfect they have issues as well and just basically accepting okay i did shit here or maybe that was a bad decision but it's done and it's not the end of the world i can improve tomorrow and then this, of course, relates to comparisons then where you shouldn't be compar comparing yourself to people around you because everybody is so different. But instead, you should be comparing yourself to who you were yesterday because you can always improve and any bit of progression is important. When you start doing that, the research actually shows that oxytocin starts getting released more and more in your brain. And as a result, you start feeling better, which is what everybody wants, of course. Yeah, no, before you, you delved on to the last bit there, I was going to say oxytocin sounds like it comes from a lack of self-love or, or self-acceptance. But as, as Irish people, especially uh, this podcast going out to a lot of males, like, uh, I think it's something we, we really struggle with and we're very harsh on ourselves for. But what advice would you give to someone who, who is like this and, and struggles to, to do it? Obviously, you said you, yourself you struggled with it in college, but um, how, how do we adapt and, and help? Because any like feel good neurotransmitter like this, we want more of it. So, so mm -hmm. what what mechanisms or approach would you use or suggest? <laughs> um, okay, I, I have one funny one that I, I'll I'll finish with. But the first one is um, you're completely right in relation to um, Irish people are particularly terrible at this because Irish people do not like a compliment, and no. and if they don't like it off other people, that means they're not going to give it to themselves. Mm -hmm. Like a perfect example, I think uh, Blind Boy said it perfectly he said we have ireland collectively have low self-esteem whereby like girl says to another girl oh uh that dress is lovely and they'll say it's pennies so that's almost implying yes it's nice but i'm really poor so we generally have uh low self-esteem as a society um 
so what we can do this, and, and this is the interesting thing. First thing is accept the compliment rather than trying to be like, shut the fuck up or whatever. Sorry, I'm a loud curse. No, okay. no, no, no. <laughs> um, rather than saying that, just basically say, uh, thanks, simple as, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, another thing then as well is this is something that we don't always have to talk about ourselves, but you can be self-compassionate uh, in your mind. Basically, just try and it's, again, something you need to practice, but over time, practice and become aware. So when you make a mistake, just tell yourself it's grand. It's not the end of the world. Um, everybody makes mistakes. That's OK. As long as I'm progressing, that's the main thing. And then the final, the final one, and this sounds ridiculous, but um, I actually recently just wrote about this and it's scary how effective it is. Hugging. Um, Hugging has basically shown from a young age, it basically causes explosions of oxytocin. And obviously males are, particularly in Ireland, like they might give, uh, maybe they'll give a wave or they'll give a nod, but yeah. actually hugging your friends, hugging your family is really, really important. Um, because this is a learned response when you're a child. If you have good attachment with your caregivers, your warmth is basically really really important it's uh you were talking about maslow so it's one of uh the it's one of the main like survival mechanisms is uh warmth so oxytocin learns to be released when you give when you receive a hug from your mother your father your guardian so as a result as we get older that doesn't go away so when we hug or when we connect with somebody um oxytocin is released into your brain as a result so my weird advice is to hug more which i know is difficult with covid now but yeah, yeah, but hopefully we won't have a pandemic forever. Uh, some some things I got from you there, Christopher, is yeah. uh, this comparison across countries. Like uh, obviously Irish people, we are atrocious at accepting compliments, and and as you said, like as was quoted in in Blind Boy, it, it, it's very much a reality. But I, I live in over in Vancouver, Canada, and I just think the North Americans, if they get a compliment. They just accept it. There's no pushback on it. They're, they're, like self-esteem must be higher here because they, they just, and to us, like we, we'd be saying, Jesus, they loved ourselves. But it's, it's probably the way yeah. it should be. And then when you go on about Hogan, like you see it a lot more in Mediterranean countries or Italians or Spanish or French or Portuguese. Mm. They are very embraceable of each other and, and they do have that close and family connection, probably because of something as simple as a hug releasing oxytocin. One thing I was going to say is that it has come up on a lot of podcasts um, previously that speaking takes the weight off our shoulders and helps us mentally. Um, what happens during this process and what co- causes this or what triggers it to, to give us this feeling of alleviation? Because we, we often refer to it as like leaving pressure up for tire or, or just feeling better in general. Yeah, um, I'm happy you asked this now. So um, for years as well, I always thought this was overrated. Um, you know, every mental health campaign is always saying talk, talk, talk. And I know it's important, but I was kind of thinking it's almost a kind of scapegoat solution where if you talk about it, like all mental health problems will be lifted. That's ridiculous. But um, as I looked more into it, there's actually a very good biological and neurological explanation to this. So I want you to picture now uh, your, uh, your brain is split in two. So there's the right brain and the left brain. Mm-hmm. The right brain, it's known knowledge, uh, controls the left side of your body. The left brain controls the right side of your body. So how this works is basically the right brain is, um, is where our emotions and creativity come from. So it has no language. It's not very intelligent, but it has passion, for example. I'm going to try and personify it. Mm-hmm. 
the left side of the brain then is linguistic. So it loves lists, it loves order. It's how we uh, talk, it's where our writing comes from, it's how we uh, articulate things. So our left brain has the ability to understand language, but our right brain doesn't. Now, when something negative happens, like let's say a sad event where you're feeling sadness, your right brain is basically screaming out, saying, um, screaming out in the form of neurotransmitters that make up sadness. But the problem is it doesn't have language, so it doesn't understand why it's feeling sad. The left brain, on the other hand, is the only part of your whole body or brain that can basically speak to the right brain to tell it what's happening. When you articulate how you're feeling or why you're feeling sad or reflecting on whatever situation happened, you're helping your left brain articulate what's going on. And as a result, then that trans uh, that then basically translate to the right brain okay you're feeling sad because of this reason and as a result you have something known as neurological integration that sounds very fancy <laughs> um but if you don't talk about it or if you try to repress it what essentially happens is your right brain is screaming out i'm feeling sad and i don't know why and it's not finding a solution so as a result that sadness doesn't go away now, this is obviously a very uh, metaphorical explanation to this, but the neurologist, uh, Dan Siegel, he's big behind it. That's the easiest way to explain it, where right brain doesn't have language but has emotion, left brain has language. When we speak about things or when we articulate things, it's telling our left brain why you're feeling sad, and then the left brain translates to the right brain. And as a result, then with that integration, the negative emotion goes away quicker. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, I... I... I, it's I difficult to explain but so it's very interesting yeah. and it makes perfect sense that that is not airy fairy as as you probably would believe yeah. you can see the the science be, behind it but uh just interesting to know that that like if we are just bottling things we have all these emotions and the other side of our brain is struggling because they don't <laughs> there's no communication or or mm. pathways or, or whatever scientific term you used a minute ago but um I, <laughs> what what advice would you would you have for people who are listening that that may be struggling mentally um so i'm going to so i imagine now when you've asked a few people like i'm going to try refrain from the the common things such as like talk about it because we like i know that's important you know that's important so a different point i'll give um and again with the big fancy words uh cognitive behavioral therapy which cbt which i'm sure lots of people heard of um, I think people underestimate how much our thoughts influence um, how we behave and how we feel. So um, a, lo a lot of people, they can't differentiate. I've noticed this when we go into schools. They can't tell the difference between feelings and thoughts. They think basically feeling angry and thinking angry are two, same, are two of the same things, but they're very, very different. So um, situation, let's go with, is um, somebody... Um, cuts cuts the line in the post office or something okay and that obviously is going to make us feel angry now we have two options here and how we think in that situation we can't control every situation but we can control how we think in that situation mm -hmm. so we can think in two ways unhelpful or helpful and this is really important it's not thinking negatively or positively because not all positive thoughts are helpful it breaks my heart when i see influencers online saying if you think positively everything will be okay because not all positive thoughts are helpful. For example, if I went down to the pub now and drank 10 pints and told myself, oh, well, I'm a really good driver so I can drive myself home. <laughs> that is a positive thought, but it's not very helpful. Yeah. 
No. So we want to think helpfully and unhelpfully, not positive and negative. So going back to the situation anyway, thoughts lead to behaviors, which then lead to how we feel. So if we're feeling angry in that situation, an unhelpful thought would be, who, who the fuck does that person think they are? How dare they cut the line? I'm going to kill them. Yeah. That will then lead to the unhelpful behavior of shouting at them, giving out to them, uh, getting, and then you'll probably get kicked out of the post office. And as a result, you're still feeling angry afterwards. Mm-hmm. But we have a choice in how we think. So rather than thinking unhelpfully, we can think helpfully like, okay, well, maybe that person has a good excuse or maybe I should deal with this problem, but correctly, I can ask them, why did they skip the queue? That will then lead to the helpful behavior of doing so. And when they say, oh, I'm so sorry, I thought the line was back there and you get back in front, you're not as angry anymore. So people underestimate how powerful how we think is in relation to how we behave and how we feel. So it's really, really important that you be more aware of how you think in situations. And when you're feeling down, ask yourself, okay, what's the unhelpful thought here? And what's the helpful thought? If you go for the helpful thought, you'll go with the helpful behavior. And then over time, you'll feel better. That is, in my opinion, the best advice you can give anybody. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for a lot. And I've seen it firsthand. No, uh, what I take from that is like, I'd, I'd probably go towards the latter and, and just be like, oh, whatever their problem is, leave them off. If I did like approach and say like, hey, there's a queue there or anything, just ask them why they did it basically. And if they just said, oh, sorry, I, I didn't know. Honestly, I wouldn't give it a second thought. I'd be just like, mm. oh, do you know what? Just stay where you are. It's fine. No problem. But if they give me a negative reaction, that sets me off then. How do we manage that better? So, so it's the same thing. It's just more difficult the second time around. So I should have explained. So when I say helpful, what I mean is helpful basically means is this going to improve my situation or is this going to represent the person I want to be or my values? So I'd like to think uh, most people like yourself want to be basically better. They want to be um, a nice person. They want to do their best. Mm -hmm. In that situation, again, even if they set you off, it's asking yourself, okay, what's the unhelpful thought here and what's the helpful thought? The unhelpful thought, which most of us will have being honest, is, okay, this person's a prick, so (laughs) I need to get them back. Yeah. But then the helpful thought is, Okay, even if I get them back, even if I shout at them or if I hit them or whatever, is that going to really improve my situation? I might feel better short term, but long term, um, is it going to improve my situation? Probably not. So if you want to be that person who is basically seen as the bigger person or um, the kinder person or the person who's able to tolerate that, then you're, you're just not going to do it. So it's just about reusing it. And I know it's difficult. Um, I'm a hypocrite. I fall into the category of doing unhelpful thoughts which lead to unhelpful behaviors um another another interesting point as well is um there's there's actually two another one is in that situation where they're feeling angry um some people's solutions as well is uh just ignore it um and i actually don't recommend that Mm -hmm. because your brain's telling you you're angry for a reason like you've been wronged so you should listen to what your brain's telling you and then deal with it correctly not dealing with it or saying it's grand is just basically repressing, which is generally unhelpful. And the second point is um, in relation to impulsivity and like what we were talking about with anger, if you have that ability to stop and be like, okay, what's the unhelpful thought and what's the helpful thought? And if your helpful thought is I'm going to hit him because it'll make him better and you hit him, I have no argument against that because at least you had the ability to not act on your emotion, but wait and make the decision. And if that is helpful to you, that's fine. I'm not here to tell you what's right and wrong, as I was saying, but it's just about basically not letting your emotions control you. 
that's the important thing. No, because because that, that, that like that point there is, is exactly where I was going to go. Um, obviously, the first part was negative reactions for the second time, and then you just said to think again what would be helpful, what would be unhelpful. But often we just like we could be in that situation, we just like oh, just leave them off, right? And then you're thinking about it later that day, you're like, oh, geez, I should have said yeah. something, like you know, and and that's where the, the repressing comes in that. You you need to just respond to it in that moment, Christopher. There's a stigma among men, especially in Ireland, for speaking to counsellors. What what would be your take on this? Oh, one hundred percent. There's a big big problem. Um, even like when I worked in well, this is in the UK, but when I worked in the anger management program, for example, like it was obviously mainly men. But 50% of them were only there because they didn't want to be there. Like they were only forced to go either on a court order or else like their family around them were forcing them to go. And as you're probably aware, it doesn't matter how good the therapy is. If somebody doesn't want to be there themselves, if they're not motivated, it's useless because yeah. they're not like if they don't want to change. They're not going to change. Mm -hmm. So I suppose this is the important first step is you should want to change. And then this ties in with this issue of the stigma whereby males sometimes are telling themselves, I don't want to change. I'm okay the way I am when they're not. So that's the first battle to face. Um, and then going back to the counsellors, then it's the point I made earlier. The big issue is you're put on waiting list now for so long that um, some just can't afford it. They can't go private, um, which then ties. <laughs> sounds like I'm giving myself cheap plugs, but this is why Motus, uh, my organisation was set up, is that rather than waiting for the problem to happen and it being dependent on money, I think a far better solution is preventing the problem through education before it happens. It's a far more effective way of dealing with it. And in turn, it takes the pressure off the mental health services. Um, but the other thing, again, yeah, I might sound like an optimist, but I also do think it is getting better very slowly, but there are more males going to counselors as well. So I think yeah, that's good. And, and it, as you said, probably majority of people watching normal people are females, but I'm sure there's, there's some men sat there with their missus watching it. And yeah. the more it's in movies and stuff, the, the better, to be honest. Definitely. Um, yeah. One, one interesting point you have, like across the board, preventative methods are better than corrective methods and, and that's obviously what you're trying to achieve with with motor motors and um, what what help can one avail of um, if they are struggling mentally um so my immediate response to this so i'd actually have a lot better knowledge um of the uk because that's where it worked but um in ireland i know obviously there's the help there's the helplines um which are fantastic like aware and like um pay the house you have the charities, obviously. Uh, for children, Jigsaw's fantastic. Choyline's good. Um, and then I, I think, I, I often think GPs get a bad rep, but um, from what I've heard anyway, GPs are generally helpful. Um, they mightn't have expertise in it, but they are generally helpful in support because often people just need support. Like mm -hmm. that's why the helplines are so good. They're not going to be life-changing therapies, but sometimes people just need somebody to uh, to be listened to, essentially. So, and if anybody is obviously struggling mentally um, to the extent of suicidal ideation, I say I would say immediately present yourself to A&E. Um, again, you often hear the, the bad, the, the negative stories on, um, that somebody isn't dealt with correctly, but they're, I, I think they're in the minority. Um, I think generally if you present yourself to A&E, they will be as helpful as possible. 
I'd like to hope anyway. <laughs> we'll, we'll um, really hope. But an um, interesting point you said there was about GPs, but it's not only GPs um, that are often scapegoats. Counselors and psychologists are often scapegoats for. Um, this is my opinion now for uh, for a poor government structure regarding mental health and mental health facilities um, and infrastructure in Ireland and probably many other many other countries as well. Whereas in reality, the services received can be quite beneficial, and more often than not, the counsellors they see or the psychologists they they seek help from are are really good. But it's an overwhelmed system. I saw a recent post online um, about a man going to his GP and being put on a two-year waiting list. Um, what I just for everything I said, what what is your take on this, or or what's your opinion on it? Yeah, so um, I'd fully believe that. I'd say that's true about the man on the waiting list. Um, it's the same for children. Children need immediate help and they're put on waiting lists as well for a year or two, which it's yeah. far too late then, essentially. Yeah. Um, so again, comparing Ireland and the UK, uh, the point I'll make, the UK have a great thing, which uh, I wish Ireland would follow suit in that they have something known as IAPS, so improving access to psychological services in that you can self-refer yourself to psychological services. You don't need a referral from a GP. Mm. Um, I think that would be massive. That would be a massive improvement. But again, the issue is the government aren't giving the money for it. Um, so... <laughs> I could go on a rant here, I won't, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not pleased at all with how much uh, funding is given to mental health services in this country. I, I think it's a bit of a disaster, really. Um, but again, I will point out that even at the best, so the UK are far better and the UK still struggle. Like the waiting list in the two, I worked in the mood, anxiety and personality disorder um, sector and the waiting list was still about four or five months. Like, so it's better but it's still not fantastic um and this is again it sounds like i'm really really plugging us but it is worth noting that even if you do get therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy is the most successful from a clinical psychology perspective it's only at about 68 69 percent success rate um for recovery so there's still issues there like it's not bulletproof um obviously there's all the issue with psychiatrists and drugs as well but I genuinely believe uh, prevention is a better solution. Um, not that the mental health service should, should still get funding, but I think if you can teach a child how to deal with difficult life situations, it's far more effective than waiting for the problem to happen and then trying to deal with it then. Um, so I really, really believe in pushing for a new education system that takes mental health education more seriously. And for, for people who don't know CBT, uh, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, how, how would one seek that out in Ireland? Um, so in Ireland, basically, there would be CBT practitioners or there would be clinical psychologists that use CBT. Um, so how it would have to work is you'd go through your GP and your GP would then refer you on to a Cognitive Behavioural Therapy specialist or else a, um, or else a clinical psychologist. So some of them would be based in hospitals like St. Patrick's Hospital in uh, Dublin and then others would be private. So again, if you have the money, you will get through quicker, which mm -hmm. as I mentioned, is an issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then actually I think so, just so people aren't confused. So there's like lots of third wave cognitive behavioral therapies they're referred to. So there's different types. Uh, they're similar. They all have the same idea that how you think affects how you feel. But there's, uh, I think the main one in Ireland is called dialectical behavioral therapy, so DBT. 
So don't be scared that it's a completely different thing. It's very similar, just slightly different. Probably off the same fundamentals. Uh, just yeah. quickly, uh, we have this misperception, and um, you referred to early in the podcast about seeing a counsellor, and we have this idea of sitting on a, a long, wavy couch with a, a practitioner or a counsellor next to us speaking and asking us various questions. What actually is the practice in reality or... So, yeah, so don't get me wrong. So that's more psychotherapy, really, which is a specific type. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is very proactive. So it's very much like you will work one-on-one -on -one with somebody, but you'll have homework. And it's more, you basically go into the room and you explain a situation that you found difficult. And then you'll work through the um, how you thought in the situation, how you behaved, and then how you felt. But then the really important aspect of CBT is the homework you do. So you're meant to go home and then try to apply it over time. Mm -hmm. um, there's also like group therapy is very, very popular as well. And I'm a fan of group therapy, so it will work for some, not so much for others. But the massive benefit of group therapy is that because people will picture like the AA meeting, for example, but you learn through other people's experiences. So you can relate to, okay, when that person was feeling depressed in that situation, that actually happened to me before. And this is how they dealt with it. And I would have dealt with that very similar, but this is what they're doing now. So learning a lot through other people. Um, but yeah, the couch thing is so uh, blown out of proportion. It's like back to Freud and stuff like that. So uh, it's very, very, it's um, like, it's, it's not, a, there's no power dynamic there. I describe it like it's not like um, the psychologist is there with their glasses and their notebook and their, telling the other person what to do essentially it's a very equal relationship psychologists this is what they do in their education is making sure that the person is comfortable like you're talking to somebody who knows their stuff but they're not showing off about it as well christopher i really appreciate you coming on and and talking about everything you did like i know i'm after taking a lot from it so i really appreciate it. and i'm yeah. sure if i have taken a lot from it then a lot of others can benefit from it. some really good content you've thrown in there throughout just thanks a million for, thanks coming. for having me. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye.